So good morning. Um, I know probably a lot of you guys don't know me, but Alistair is correct. My name is Shannon, and I have been attending St. Peter's Fireside for about a year and a half. Um, and I've been involved with St. Peter's Fireside in a variety of ways. Um, as Alistair mentioned, serving on the interest, intercessory prayer team. I've attended a small group and I'm currently co-leading a small group. And then, as Alistair mentioned as well, I am an intern this current year. Um, he asked me to preach a little while ago. I was open to it. So here I am. You guys get a journey with me through my first official sermon. Um, yeah, so be gentle, please. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if Elster planned this or not, but the hilarious irony of all this is that I get to preach on the complete downer text of our series that's all about our love of darkness and evil. So I have a feeling I am never going to be asked to preach again. <laughs> I'm kidding, um, of course, um, but this is actually a really difficult topic to talk about. Before we dig into this, this week's text, though, I think it's helpful to recall Alistair's sermon last week. He spoke on how the word of God was present before all things were created and shines into the darkness even after sin entered the world. No matter what we do, nothing can stop the light from shining through the cracks and crevices. And if you guys remember, we had our St. Peter's rave party where we had glow sticks and we cracked them and we held them in our hands with the lights out and even that light shone through the cracks in our hands. And can I just mention that um, I've never been blessed, like received a benediction with a glow stick in a pastor's hand before. Yeah, that happened for the first time and it was kind of weird. And then he spoke about John the Baptist and how he was a witness to the light, which is our calling as well. During this Advent season, we have the opportunity to be light into the world. And especially when it's 4 p.m. and it's getting dark, we get to be the light of Christ as we wait for his arrival. But oftentimes, we don't do this. We don't shine the light of Christ into our world. And in fact, we can look very dark, and we can do very dark things. Why is that? And that, in essence, is the question of our sermon today. If the light of Christ has come into the world, why do we love our darkness? The big idea that we're going to explore is this. We love the darkness more than the light. Because coming into the light exposes the darkest depths of the corners of our hearts. But as much as we love our darkness, the light loves us more. So here we go, onward and upward. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. These are really famous verses. Most of us here, Christian or not, probably know them by heart. But here's where I want us to focus on verse 19, just two verses later. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Jesus' first five words of verse 19 are stated so matter-of-factly, and this is the judgment. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. How can he do so? And the word judgment causes half of us to tune out immediately. Judging? 
nobody likes to be judged, but we constantly are, people make conclusions about us, others, the area of city we live in, the kind of transportation that we drive, our food and health choices, especially in Vancouver where everything is gluten, dairy, and wheat free. Moreover, we ourselves judge, others and ourselves. We judge as we are judged. We make estimations in our minds and hearts, whether we verbalize them or not. Judgment is an inclination of the human heart. That's how we get into so much trouble. We make what we think to be good judgment calls, which are actually not so great at all. We see countless people throughout the world, throughout the world and hear them on the news that make really bad judgments. But the basis on which we make these estimations are our own judgments, that our conclusion is the right one. There's no common denominator within all of this. It's based on what we think to be good and right, creating a sense of control and power. So how is the judgment in verse 19 different? What would be obvious in the time John's gospel was written is lost in our modern day context. Judgment is the prerogative of kings. It was their job. It's what they're elected and expected to do, hopefully in justice and righteousness. We don't have many kings today, and the few that we have give us a very backwards idea of what it means to be a king. William and Kate's faces plastered on the fronts of magazine covers that dish out the royal family's latest clothes and fights and additions to the family and favorite shampoo is not what it means to be king. The work of kings is the hard work of governing, ruling, and judging. Now the king who's proclaiming judgment in verse 19 is Jesus himself. We need to remember the greater context of these verses. It's a conversation going on between a man named Nicodemus who's a leader in the Jewish community and a teacher and Jesus. They're discussing the kingdom of God and Nicodemus is asking, how does one see and enter the kingdom of God? And Nicodemus is also saying, it's as the person that I am that I wanna see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus wants to know the realities of the kingdom of God. But these realities, they can't be known except by listening to the testimony of those who've actually seen the kingdom of God, who've been there. If we wanted to know what space was like, we would want to ask an astronaut, if we happen to know one, somebody who's seen it and who has been there. But no theologian or astronaut or astronomer has ever ascended into heaven and can tell us what they saw. The only way to know things about the kingdom of God is through the one who descended from it, Jesus. John's gospel presents Jesus as the king of this kingdom who has come. And as we've been learning in Mark's gospel, our sermon series throughout this fall, is that the king is Jesus and he preaches about his kingdom. Last week in Alistair's sermon, we saw that Jesus' descent from heaven into earth is like, of that of, is like that of light into darkness. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of light, and it's come down into our world of darkness. In fact, this taps into a great desire and longing. Our first reading, uh, text reading this morning, Israel, as the people of God, they've been longing and waiting for the Messiah, the anointed king, to come down into darkness and to establish his kingdom. One of our favorite Christmas passages is the one that was read 
Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The anticipated and longed for king of the kingdom of light was to come and to rescue Israel from darkness. This king was born to rule with justice, to bring joy and peace, to shine as a light in the darkness and establish an everlasting kingdom. Can you even imagine that with the amount of hand changes that power and kingdoms has gone through even just from the First World War, let alone before that? An everlasting kingdom. But what we need to hone in on is this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Look again at verse 19 in John's Gospel. The light has come into the world. In other words, the great light has come. Jesus, as the king of light, has entered into darkness. But as the light shines, we see something that surprises us. Nicodemus in Jesus' conversation reveals that this king that was sent into the world came with the role of savior first and judge second. So all that we've been talking about judging, that's kind of the second task. The first is to save. We need to go back to verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We're all so familiar with these verses that I want to read them a second time, um, maybe a little bit slower. And I don't know what you need to do, but try to hear them as if for the first time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. The king of the kingdom of light, the great light that created the world, that was before the world began, plunged into the world of darkness in order to save humanity. To save us from what? Perishing. In other words, to save us from ruin and destruction, from the penalty of sin, which is death to save us from the eternal darkness of death, and even the present darkness, to save us from anxiety, fear, and disorder. The purpose of his coming was to save, not condemn, but to save. Never lose sight of this. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. And thinking back to Nicodemus and his question of how to enter the kingdom of God, it's now determined by whether we willingly submit to the kingship of Christ or not. Judgment is now determined 
by how we respond to the light of Jesus. And if only verse 19 ended with, the light has come into the darkness. The saddest part of the verse isn't the darkness itself, but that it goes on to say, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Let that sink in. People love the darkness rather than the light. And there's a great irony here. We've looked at perhaps the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But the world so loved its darkness more that it rejects the beloved son. The king that has been long awaited, the one that plunged into the darkness, the one that loves the world, is met with unrequited love. The people love the darkness of the world more than the light. Jesus, as king, came to take away the judgment due to us by taking it upon himself on the cross, but our denial of him brings judgment upon ourselves. He came as light to take away our darkness, but we refuse his light and go deeper into it. He came to save us, and we condemn ourselves. What kind of darkness is it, then, that we love more than the light? If we go back to Isaiah 9, Isaiah shows us what this darkness is like. And darkness is a nasty place. Verses 16 to 21 describe the darkness. It's a place where leaders mislead people, with those being led coming to destruction. There are many who took no pity on orphans and widows. It is a darkness where the whole nation is godless and does wicked things, where, the mouths, where mouths speak disgraceful words, where people devour and are still hungry, where they go to the point of inflicting self-harm with no satisfaction. It's one characterized by anxiety, fear, and disorder, Isaiah's exact words. And this doesn't sound much different than our world today, does it? Our nations are very dark places, even Canada, which we are so blessed to live in. Leaders misguide and inform on national and international scales. The marginalized are neglected locally and globally. Anxiety, fear, and disorder run our lives. Disgraceful words continually flood our Facebook and social media feeds, where the dog-eat-dog -dog world of business and competition devours people where self-harm occurs through addiction, drugs, and alcohol consumption, and it only brings te temporary satisfaction, where love is about self-fulfillment and preference instead of self-emptying and giving, where depression and suicide and anger plague the population. The darkness is all around us, and we cannot escape it. The darkness is what our news is comprised of, and it's most evident by the fact that the final segment of our news is the lighter side of things that features dancing dogs or marathon running 90-year-olds. This is the smallest bit of the whole. We live in a world of darkness that revolves around talking about it. If this is what the darkness is like, verse 19, saying that we love the darkness more than the light, makes absolutely no sense. Or at least it doesn't to me. Because I look at the world around me, and at my own life, and my own darkness, and I don't think that I love it, or at least let alone love it more than Jesus. 
Who on earth would love the darkness of the world? Who loves the deeds of ISIS? The suicides of young people? The murders and rapes of women and men? Who loves lying politicians and deceitful CEOs? Who loves the downtown east side being in the state it's in? Who loves the bombing in Paris? And who loves cancer? This world is dark, and I'm pretty sure I don't love it. The important word in the verse, though, is rather. It means more willingly, more readily, to a greater degree. People love the darkness more willingly than the light. It's not that we don't love the light and all that it represents. God, his kingdom, Christ. We can all say that an eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus is sweet. We all love ourselves some baby Jesus at Christmas time. Or that Jesus in his ministry seems like a good man. Or that the idea of God is comforting. I don't think eternal life is something that anybody would refuse. So why do we love the darkness more readily, more willingly than the light? Please hear me on this. It's not what the light represents. It's what the pure light of God does. It exposes us. And we hate that. John writes in verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And initially we think, great, expose the rapists, the murderers, the terrorists, evil deeds. Do it, Lord. Those are evil deeds, and that's what the light came to expose. And the thing is, there's no neutral stance towards the light. It either exposes everyone or no one. And John 3.16 tells us that the light is for everyone. It's for the world. And that means it exposes everyone. And that means it exposes me. My innermost thoughts and desires, addictions, shame, the things that no one knows or will ever know about me. The thoughts that I have about others, the things prideful or shameful I think about myself, the opinions I have, the things I take pleasure in that no one would ever want to know. The light penetrates even deeper still. It exposes that which we may not even be aware of in ourselves. The decisions or actions or words that we think are pretty good. The good suggestions we propose. A new ministry, a word of encouragement, volunteering. We would never think our deeds or actions to be dark or evil. But sometimes, perhaps, we start new ministries to give us platforms to perform from. Or we give words of encouragement to selfishly hustle for love and acceptance. Or we volunteer not from a heart of selfless service, but for resume purposes or with bitterness behind it. Jesus speaks of the inner depths of evil deeds in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he says if you hate your brother, you murder him. If you look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery. Evil deeds are more than we think that they are, and they run deep into the corners of the human heart. The light exposes our dark inner character, that we want to call the shots, that we want to exercise judgment, that we want power and control. We want to do what we want. We try to disguise our power and decisions in the ways that we think to be good. We can clothe our deeds in artificial light. And we see the result of this throughout history, where there's been a lot of darkness in the world, 
done in the name of righteousness or even in the name of Jesus. We adhere as a human race to the belief that one more application of power, one more change in our lives, one more thing that we do will bring peace or love or joy or contentment. One more invasion, one more war, one more escalation, one more jealous fit, one more towering rage, one more whatever your upper hand holds that will make goodness triumph and peace reign. But it never works. It always turns sour. Turning to the light, entering into the kingdom of God that is light, submitting to the light of King Jesus, it utterly exposes us. It causes us to see the light as a threat. It makes us vulnerable, weak, and helpless. The light exposes the darkness of power and control and any sense we have as being okay as independent people. It means that our deeds are shown to be evil in comparison to the light of Christ. The light leaves no shadow to hide and no, darn, no corner to duck into. And so our fear of exposure by the light is what makes us love the darkness rather than the light. So long as we avoid the light and have the darkness around us, the darkness and evil in us can never be exposed. And this has been the Lord's work in me of late. I realize that I've only allowed the gospel to go skin deep in certain areas of my life. That I still love the darkness in parts of my life more than the light because it gives me power and control. And I like that. And the image of a pedestal describes this well. I can stand high and mighty on my pedestal and feel stable and sensible, powerful, worthy, confident. It makes me feel like I'm the one who can set standards and appease judgment and control opinions. But all around this pedestal is darkness, and it's like a black bottomless pit. When others have put me up there, or when I put myself there, it is always a lonely place. In my avoidance of turning to the light and trying to keep it out, I've enclosed certain areas of my life in darkness, and I've come to love that more than the light. Where is God in the midst of the world's darkness, in your and my darkness? When we are in the darkest night of the soul and think that the world and ourselves cannot get any darker, where is God? Where is God when my love for darkness runs so deep that I can't even imagine what the light would do to me? God is on the cross. He's suffering for the darkness of the entire world as the light of the world. He is on the cross because Jesus loves us more than we love our darkness. And that is what's so hard to believe, that even as I love my darkness and refuse to turn toward the light of Christ, he loves me. Jesus loves me as I continue to refuse to get off the pedestal and turn toward the light. He's suffering with me and for me as I love my darkness. He's with me when I turn toward the light and feel the pain and vulnerability and light and freedom and see and believe that he loves me more than I have loved my darkness by entering into it with me. He isn't waiting for me to stop making my own judgments or exercising my own power or to get off the pedestal. He's waiting for me to realize he's standing on it with me, that he's already there with me in my darkness, for me to turn toward him 
and to look into his face that loves me beyond reason. He's waiting for me to see and believe that he loves me more than I love my darkness. To accept his sufficient sacrifice and judgment on darkness and to let him woo me off the pedestal into his light. And John offers us this hope. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And when we read this, we may think, if I come to the light, then I'll do what is true and I'll do good deeds then, finally. And while it's not incorrect, I don't think that's what this verse is saying given the greater context of the passage. Doing the truth is directly connected to coming to the light. They're dependent upon each other. They act together. They're not two acts of coming to the light and then doing the truth. It means and describes a person who accepts God's standards of righteousness and God's estimation of man's sinful condition. The truth is God's estimation of man, and coming to the light is our acceptance of this. Put otherwise, my works are carried out in God when I do the truth and respond with appropriate action by coming toward the light of the revelation of God in Christ and accept the light of the gospel as proclaimed in Christ that he has paid the penalty for all my sins and all my darkness and all my evil deeds and that he will give me true life and light. That darkness cannot hold back his love, that death could not separate us from his love. I want to say here that there's no indication that the person who responds in faith to the light of Christ is any better than somebody who still loves their evil deeds and remains in darkness. Salvation is offered for the entire world's darkness, and the light exposes the entire world's darkness. I realize that this is a very heavy text. Um, it's not easy to hear, and trust me, it is not easy to preach. It comes from a complete place of conviction. And the movement from hearing this message to preparing for the advent of the birth of Christ isn't easy either. It requires courage to admit our own powerlessness and darkness. But as a way to prepare for the birth of Christ, we can always pray. We can ask Jesus to shine his light into our lives and expose our darkness. In Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, offer this sort of prayer for us. This is a prayer of a man who does not shrink away from the closest scrutiny of his life but he approaches the light for full exposure. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. This is one of the most difficult prayers to pray, because if it's said in honesty, whether we admit it or not, there is darkness present. There are grievous ways in me that I cling to. There are dark thoughts that I don't want exposed and love more than the light. That's what sin is. But what is greater than our love for darkness, or darkness itself, is the light of Christ. Seeing and believing that Jesus loves me more than I love my darkness is revealed in Advent. Jesus came as the light of God into this world of darkness in order to save us from it, even while we still love it. Nothing can change that. No amount of darkness can destroy the light. 
No matter how long we stay on our pedestals and are too afraid to turn toward the light, Jesus continues to love the world more than it loves its darkness. We wait for the advent of Christ's coming again, when he'll put away all darkness and we'll love him with full abandon as he has always loved us. And we do this with great hope, knowing that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that God so loves the world that his only son will return and will eradicate darkness forever. Hallelujah.